Psalm 78 this morning. Many of you remember in the Beijing Olympics in 2008 that uh, the American team, the 4 by 100 um, American team, relay team, was slated to win, but they have to make it through all these preliminaries. And on the way to the finals, they dropped the baton. How many of you remember that? Yeah, it was quite the moment. Years and years and years of uh, not just the four guys who ran, but there's alternates and just all kinds of um, practice and training and then just gone. They dropped the baton. We got a video to show it. Good clean start. It's Moreira of Brazil in lane two, closest to the uh, inside field. Hessian of the Netherlands, uh, Tsukihara of Japan in lane four, the South African Dryer in lane five, and they go into the first changeover. The U.S. had swapped to Travis Paget. Trinidad and Tobago have Mark Burns running for them. The next change, they come round. It's the South African Kumbane who's running, but the Americans are out to a good lead. Davis Patton come to the last leg and uh, Tyson Gay of the United States is away and the Americans have missed it. They've completely missed it and the Japanese will come home in this heat in second but first I think it's Trinidad and Tobago. Tyson Gay out off his mark a little too early. Team USA what a tragedy they were running so well the third leg was absolute. Did you get that? They were in the lead and they dropped the baton. What's our baton? What are we passing on? I, I think it's summed up very well, and it may, it may be in your worship guide, the phrase, for the glory of God and the good of His people. That's what we're passing on. We're passing on the glory of God as found in the Lord Jesus Christ, His first coming and His second coming, and all that it means to proclaim that greatness and that goodness and to love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength for the good of his people, for the joy of his people. That's what we're passing on. Well, the question is, how do we pass it on? What does it mean to pass on the baton? Um, monarch butterflies migrate from the north to the south. But they don't make it all the way. It takes four generations of monarchs to make the migration south and the migration back north. So the first generation goes about 25% of the way and they die. And then there's the, you know, all the stages of the butterflies and the next generation takes it a little further and then further and then further. And finally, they, they reach the goal through four generations. But how's the next generation know of those monarchs? We don't know. I mean, it's probably not the number one funded government study, but we don't know. How do they know where they are and how far they should go and that they're done and they need to, how, how do they know? The good thing for us is we do know. We do know how to pass the baton and the key is found in Psalm 78. Because you may love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you may love him and serve him. But what about your kids and grandkids? How do you, how do you pass that baton off? Tyson Gay, he either left too fast or the guy behind him was, he left too soon or the guy behind him wasn't fast. Whatever happened, they know exactly the reason the baton was dropped. And Psalm 78 tells us also. 
if the baton doesn't get passed, if the torch isn't passed on, um, what's the reason? So let's take a look. Psalm 78, before we read, let's ask God's Spirit to open our hearts. Our Father, thank you for your word. Open our hearts. Give us a mind to understand and hearts to feel and to know and the will to do. Without your Spirit, we are without hope. Without your word, without your Son, we are without hope. So come to us. In Jesus' name, amen. The first step is found in the first couple verses. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. The Bible says this over and over and over again. Jesus said to the Pharisees, haven't you read? Haven't you read? Give ear, watch, look, listen, be careful. You've read this a hundred times. I can't tell you how many times I've read Psalm 78, and this week I found something new. It's a call to listen. It's a call for adults to listen. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. He says it in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Shema. And then he says, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And these words which I am telling you shall be on your heart, and then you teach them to your children. So part of the passing of the baton, the first step is that these have to actually be on our hearts. We have to actually love these things. We have to know these things to love these things. The great theologian Winnie the Pooh said this, sometimes if you stand on the bottom rail of a bridge and lean over to watch the river sleeping, slipping slowly away beneath you, you will suddenly know everything there is to be known. If, if we go to the side of the bridge and we sit and we open the book and we just stare at it, we just look at it, we just say to ourselves and we pray to God, open the, my ears, help me to understand and know these things and just look at it. it you really can't do it in a car. I have, I have a friend who said, yeah, I, I just, when my Bible reading, I'm in the car and the app I'm using have a, has a two times faster thing so I can listen to it fast. No. <laughs> listen to it slowly. Listen to it carefully. Let it dive into the inner recesses of your hearts and pray through it and pray about it because unless it's on your heart, You'll never get it on your kid's heart or your grandkid's heart. You'll ne the baton will never be passed unless the truth of this word goes into every nook and cranny of your heart and your life. One of my favorite paragraphs in all the world besides after the Bible, Roland Allen wrote a book, The Spontaneous Expansion of the Church. And on pages 10 and 11, he says some just this, I just think it's the best paragraph ever after the Bible. We have to speak with conviction to our children because they'll see right through us. You know they will, and they do. They, they, can, they can see us. They know. What, here's what Roland Allen says, what carries conviction is the manifest disinterestedness of the speaker. He speaks from his heart because he's too eager to be able to refrain from speaking. He, he speaks from his heart. He has to speak. 
He can't stop. His subject has gripped him. He speaks of what he knows, and he knows it by experience. The truth which he imparts is his own truth. He knows its force. He is speaking almost as much to relieve his own mind as to convert his hearer. He has to say it. You know how it is when you, when you go to Yosemite and you come back? What if someone told you, you can't tell anybody about your trip? Nope, not a word. You can go. You can experience it. You can love it. But when you get back, you can't say a word. That would be torture, wouldn't it? What do we do? We, we tell the stories of the things that have gripped our hearts. If this has gripped our hearts, then we, have, we know its force, Alan says. He is speaking almost as much to relieve his own mind as to convert his hearer. And yet he is eager to convert his hearer as to relieve his own mind, for his mind can only be relieved by sharing his new truth. And his truth is not shared until another has received it. It's, it, it is like Yosemite. You see people and you talk to people they've never been. And you just, you got to go. I won't be happy until you go. We have friends in the first service. Um, she's not been. It's like, you have to go. So we can talk about it. So you can know what we love, and you can love the same thing. This his hearer realizes. To all this is added the mysterious power of a secret. Christian experience is always a secret. It is. And the man who speaks of it to another always pays him a subtle compliment when he entrusts him with his secret of life. When you talk to other people about what it means to be a Christian and your love for God, you are exposing the secret of your life, the central most important thing about you. You have opened up to them. In speaking of it, he goes through it again. In setting it before another, he sets it before himself in a new light. Every time you speak of it, you, you hear it from your own mouth and you go, wow, wow. He gets a deeper sense of its reality and power and meaning. In speaking of it, he pledges himself to the conduct and life which it involves. There's something about speaking the truth to your children and to others as you're sharing your faith that somehow you are committing yourself to living that way. He proclaims himself bound by it, and every time that his speech produces an effect upon another, that effect reacts upon himself and making his hold upon his truth surer and stronger. That's the first step. If you want to pass that baton, it has to be on your heart. You have to grip it solidly, and then you give it away. Verse 2, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old that need interpretation, things that we have heard and known that our fathers told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell the coming generation. All right, here it is. What do you tell them? Do you tell them, don't, 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 do, do, do? No, that's not the first. Yes, there are don'ts and do's in the Bible, but no, here's what you tell them the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. You tell all the deeds of the Lord in the Bible, and you don't hide anything. The Bible, which God wrote, and if you were God and you wrote a book and you were the most glorious, the most wonderful thing in the universe, you were the secret to joy, you were the you are the secret to everything, 
What would you write about? You'd write about yourself, and that's what he did. The Bible is about God, first and foremost. He's the hero in every story. He is the topic of every teaching. He is, he is, he is the whom of which we must understand, and we cannot hide anything. My wife and I, our, our date night is actually a date morning, and we go to Costco. That's our, you're, you're laughing because you do the same thing, I know. <laughs> you know, we can buy that extravagant hot dog and Diet Coke for a buck and a half. And then we can get the ice cream at the end for whatever it is. Anyway. So usually when we go, we have a little list. I got it on my phone and we, you know. But yesterday we went, or Friday we went. Friday morning we went to Costco. And I said to my wife, I said, you know, honey, we have to go down every aisle because there's stuff we need and we've forgotten. We don't know we need it. <laughs> well, there's a bad side to that, <laughs> and there's a good side to that. You forget. You forget that you need windshield wipers, and you go down the windshield wiper thing, and there they are, and you go, whoa, I'm glad I remembered. So you go down every aisle, and you get reminded of what you need. That's, that's the book. You, you don't know you need Leviticus, but you need Leviticus. Well, I don't want to go down that aisle. There's aisles I don't want to go down, but we go down them. And sure enough, there's something there that we need. This book is Costco. <laughs> we used to say of Ernie's department store in Hayfork, where we used to live, we used to say, if Ernie's doesn't have it, you don't need it. It was about 30 feet wide and about 50 feet deep, and the shelves went to the top, and there was stuff from the 50s in there. It was this amazing little small-town department store kind of thing. If Ernie's doesn't have it, you don't need it. If Costco doesn't have it, you don't need it. You need to go down every aisle and look, and look carefully, and you go, whoa, I didn't know I needed that. That's this book. That's why you, you can't hide anything from them. You need, you need to read the whole thing. You need to understand the whole thing. So you go down every aisle, and in every aisle, what do you discover? You discover the mighty deeds of God. You discover what He has done. You just try this. Just, just try it on for size this week. Just read the text, whatever the text is, and say, what is God telling me about Himself in this text? It's there. You just have to have the eyes to see it. You have to open... You, you pick up the newspaper, you have a preconceived idea of what you're going to read, or Fox News, or CNN, or Huffington Post, or wherever you go. You have an idea of what you're going to hear. So, if you open the book with the idea that God is telling me about Himself in this book, so I will be absolutely amazed, and so that three things will happen. And here's what He says in Psalm 78. Notice again, Verse 4, we will not hide them from their children, We're, we'll go down every aisle, but we'll tell the coming generation, because we've done every aisle for ourselves, the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. He established a testimony in Jacob, this is the Bible, the law, the testimony of God, and He appointed a law in Israel which He commanded our fathers, and dads, this, this, this initiative must come from you. And by the way, it's a sign of revival, Malachi 4.6. When the Lord comes, when His Spirit comes and revives His people, the hearts of the fathers will return to their children. So dads, not only your home, but here at church, 
We need to take the lead. We need to take the initiative. He appointed a law in Israel which He commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, not only this generation, the next generation, the next generation of monarchs, and arise and tell them to their children so that… Okay, here's the three… Here's the three reasons you tell of the mighty deeds of God. So that, number one, if you're taking notes, by the way, in the first service, Randy, he sat right back over there, and every time I would, I, I look up, and there was Randy, he's listening to me, and then he would go like this, and he'd write something down. I said, I don't know if you're doing that on purpose or not, just to encourage me, but man, that's just, that's just like poking the preacher and saying, yeah. Anyway, you go ahead and do that, okay? So, so, number one, that they would set their hope in God. Think about this. You raise your children to do well in school, to build their resume so they can go away to a good college, and you put savings away so they can go to a good college and get a good degree and meet a nice girl or a nice boy so they can get married and have kids and start saving for college and have a nice home and a nice car and a nice… so they can… We need to inculcate in them an approach to life that everything is done for the glory of God, and those, those things don't matter. I mean, we, we, do, we do need to do those things, but there's something ultimate. There's something open, ultimate. It's to set your hope in God. Uh, the New Testament talks about it all the time. Those who have loved His appearing. Our hope is in God. It's not in our education. It's not in our jobs. It is not in our mutual funds. It is not in our nice family. It's not in all those things. Our hope is in God. There's coming a day when He will come again and take those who are His to Himself forever and ever and ever. And everything else will pale in insignificance. Who cares that you bench press 360 pounds in college? I guarantee you this will not be a topic for billions of billions of years in heaven. In fact, you'll get there and you will see the face of the Savior and all of a sudden you will go, whoa, that stuff. It didn't matter, did it? No, it didn't. Only what's done for Christ will last. Their hope must be in God and Him alone. You remember, has anyone seen that? There's a video clip of, um, uh, who's that quarterback? For, I hate those patriots. Uh, I didn't say that. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> his, his name is Tom Brady. And after he won his third Super Bowl, they have a video clip of him, and they're interviewing him about how it felt. And he says, you know what? He says, there, there's got to be something better than this. I mean, here you've given your life over to being a quarterback and to being physically fit and having a trophy, all the stuff he has. And he says, there's got to be something more. There is something more, I tell you right now. It's knowing the Savior and knowing that he's coming again and you get to look him in the face and he's going to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Oh, you just look forward to that day. Set your hope on him. Set your hope on Him. So that's your goal. That's the first goal. You tell them the mighty works of God in the Bible so that they will set their hope on God. Secondly, and not forget the works of God. You want them to remember what God has done in the Bible. 
You want them to remember. We have good forgetters. How many times in the Old Testament, over and over again, it says, the next generation raised up and they didn't know the mighty works of God. Why didn't they know the mighty works of God? Because the generation who knew the mighty works of God didn't pass on the mighty works of God and they, because they forgot and this generation didn't know. God's works in the Bible reveal His character and we have good forgetters. That's why we have communion once a month because we forget that we were vile sinners destined for the wrath of God we were worms, as Isaac Watts says, such a worm as I, and that he saved us by his grace. So remember, remember. That's why we go down those aisles in Costco. We, we see those, we remember, oh, the streaks, I, 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 but I forgot. And you go down the other, and all of a sudden, you're seeing all this stuff, and you, more and more stuff comes in the basket that you need. And it's like, it's the same with the Bible. We forget, we forget. Just read the Bible and read it a lot and, and read it to see what God has done. He is a good and a mighty and a wise and a sovereign God. And thirdly, notice what it says. Verse 7. Verse 7 is so important, but there's a more important verse in Psalm 78, by the way. So that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. Deuteronomy 6 says there's you are love the Lord your God, and it shall be on your heart, and you shall teach your children. And there's going to come a time at the end of Deuteronomy 6, he says, your son is going to ask you, Dad, why, are we, why, are, why do we have to keep these commandments? You know what the answer is? Tell the stories of the Bible. Our fathers were in Egypt and oppressed for 430 years, and the Lord brought us out with a mighty hand. Your son's going to ask you in time, or your grandchildren, or the children here at CCC, why do we, why do, we do it? Well, the stories of the Bible. And the stories of the Bible are not just for kids. Here's what happens, and it happens to us in, in preschool. My wife and I teach the two, threes, and fours. You read the stories of the Bible. The curriculum is excellent. In fact, you could just go to Hannah and just say, I, I want to, can I have this curriculum so I can teach every kid that I come in contact with about God? And then you read it, and you know what happens when you read it? You get reminded. You get reminded. So in reminding the kids, you're reminding yourself, and it's almost more important that you remind yourself you understand that? Your kids see right through you if you don't love Him. If, you're, if your faith isn't this deeply held conviction, they're, they're, they're not going to want to have anything to do with it. So they keep His commandments. Well, let's keep reading. Psalm 78, 8. And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The Ephraimites, the largest tribe these are the two, one of the two sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, armed with a bow, turned back on the day of battle. We're not quite sure when this was, but it could have been when Saul was killed. They turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to His law. They forgot His works. You see, they forgot who God was and what He had done and the wonders that He had shown them. That's why they turned back in the day of battle, because they didn't have a right view of God and what God had done. His works show who He is. And His works, as you, as you read, by the way, as you read the stories of the Bible, when you read what God is doing, that's what God is doing in your life also. You, you discover how God worked in the lives of Ruth and Esther and Deborah and Barak and Samson and 
what God is doing in that midst, and then you go, whoa, He's doing the same thing right now. You, you want to find out what God's doing in your life? Read the stories of the Bible. That's what He's doing in your life right now. It's revealed in the stories of the Bible. That's why you, go, you just go down every aisle, and you go, whoa, whoa, yeah, keep piling it in. Verse 12, in the sight of their fathers, He performed wonders in the land of Egypt in the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea, and He let them pass through it. So, just like Winnie the Pooh, right? You just sit there. Just think about that. There's all these millions of Jews, and we got the armies of Egypt, and all this, and He divides the sea, and they walk through it, and made the water stand up like a heap. In the daytime, He led them with a cloud, and all the night with a fiery light. That must have been something. God's care for His people and how He protected them. And then if you read the story in Exodus, you're going to find out that God did this on purpose. God, He, it just didn't happen. He led them to the rock in a hard place so they would see that He could deliver them, so they would put their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. That's why He did it. So they would glorify Him, and His name would be proclaimed throughout the world. Is This is it. This is in fact, the nations refer to this over and over again, God taking His people out of the land of Egypt and dividing the Red Sea and, and all the ten plagues, and the nations talked about this. He split rocks in the wilderness. Verse 15, He gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock. He caused waters to flow down like rivers. So, you know, what, what is it? You just go back. In, in your Bible, there'll be cross-references. You go back and you read the stories, and do this with your children at home. Just sit at the table and read this stuff and talk about it. They, they, they will talk to you guaranteed if they see that your heart is here so that you can ensure that their hope is in God. Their hope is in God so that they will keep His commandments and not forget we serve a great and a mighty God. Verse 17. Now, this is... this. This part of it is just amazing. God does all this stuff, and they forget. Verse 17, yet they sinned, still all the more against Him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can He also give bread or provide… It's a dangerous thing to talk to God about uh, this way or to speak in His presence, which we always do. Therefore, when the Lord heard, yeah, He heard, He was full of wrath. Fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust His saving power. Yet He commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven, verse 24, and He rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by His power He led out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. You remember the quail? And He let them fall in the midst of the camp. It was knee-deep in quail or more, and they ate and were filled, and they gave, he, he gave them what they craved. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them. He killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. Wow. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Amazing. Does that amaze anybody? Read the Bible emotionally. Just go, how could they do that? 
You know why this thing was written? That's why we may learn about ourselves. We, we do the same. Th- I do the same thing. God blesses us. He does this. And he judges us, and we just keep on sinning. Rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, can God's… Uh, I'm sorry, I lost my place. Man, where, where are we? Someone tell me what verse we're on. 32. Excellent. Thank you. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Verse 33. So, He made their days vanish like a breath, and their years in terror. When He killed them, they sought Him. Oh, such good news. Oh, just let that soak in. Good news. They repented and sought God earnestly. Yes, they remembered that God was their rock. Yes, Psalm 19, the rock and the Redeemer, the Most High God, their Redeemer. Verse 36, but they flattered Him with their mouths and lied to Him with their tongues, and their heart was not steadfast toward Him and they were not faithful to His covenant. Don't keep reading. I tell my students, I I remember distinctly in Liberia, I said, do not keep reading. We're just going to let this sink in. Just let it sink in. What do you think God did? How do you think, what, what would you do if you were God? I know what I would do. I would say, look, guys, I did all this for you. You grumbled, you complained, and I got this, and then, and then, you finally repented and said this and this, but it was fake. It was just fake repentance. Now look at 38. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. That is, that is just the most amazing thing. He says the same thing in Hosea 11. He says he's not a man. He's not going to come in wrath. That's what I would do. I would come in wrath. I would. But he's not a man. He's God. You want to know about God? I'll tell you about God. He's gracious and compassionate. He forgives the guilty. In fact, every single person who comes to him in faith and repentance he receives. So, if you're here this morning, you haven't come to Him in faith and repentance, you don't know Him, you know what? You may have done a lot of bad things, and you probably have. I mean, I've done a lot of bad things, but He'll take you. He will take you. That's just the most amazing thing. He will take you because He gave His Son for you. In fact, we've got to skip down through, and we're going to start with um, verse 65. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine, and He put His adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He didn't choose the tribe of Ephraim, no, Ephraim from the beginning. No, He didn't choose them. He chose the tribe of Judah. Of the 12 tribes, He chose Judah, Mount Zion, which He loves. Why did He choose Judah? Why did He choose Judah? Because you, you read the history, and you're going, why would He? Why? Because he chose to love. That's why you're saved this morning. He chose to love. He chose to love you. That's why you're, if you're saved this morning, if you know Christ, you know him because he chose to love you. The reason why? Not sure. But does it matter? He chose to love. And he chose to love you. And you didn't deserve it. 
Israel didn't deserve it. Judah didn't deserve it, but he chose. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth which he founded forever. He built that sanctuary that David and Solomon, David provided the material, Solomon built that incredible place where they could meet with God. And then Jesus came and said, destroy the temple, I'm going to rebuild it, the new temple is me. He chose David, his servant, he took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart he shepherded them and guarded them with his skillful hand. Whenever you read King David, think King Jesus. In Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, when he quotes the Old Testament texts about David, Psalm 16 in particular, that David wrote, he applies it to Jesus. He says, I won't allow your soul to suffer decay, but David's body decayed. Who must he have been talking about? He was talking about Jesus. So here he's talking about Jesus. God told David, a descendant of yours will reign on the throne forever. I'm sending Jesus. He's going to fix all this. I'm sending Jesus. I'm sending Jesus. All right. So, three things as we close. Number one, remember the great theologian Winnie the Pooh. You, you can have all kinds of children's programs. You can have family worship. You do, I'll do all this. But unless you yourself, dad and mom, sit on the edge of that bridge and look at the river slowly going and go down the aisles and see what you need for yourself and pray with a heart of repentance and ask God to work in your heart and open your eyes. Nothing's going to happen. I guarantee nothing will happen. So ask the Holy Spirit to open your heart. Secondly, family worship. I think mealtimes are a sacred thing. They are sacred because you're eating from the hand of God and um, He's providing and you read the Bible and you discuss things and you allow your kids to talk and tell you about their day and you actually listen to them without giving them all kinds of advice. It's very, you know, they need advice, yes, but sometimes it's okay just to listen. Um, and you wait for each other and you, you they, if, if you read the Bible with your kids, I'm telling you, they, they will open up. My wife and I teach the preschool first hour. I miss them today. Um, but we, we were teaching them about family worship. And so we have snacks. We have little animal crackers and little cheese fishy crackers. I like the animal crackers myself. Best. best. So we're teaching them, we're going to serve you, and then we're all going to wait. We're not going to just, you know, start eating. We're going to wait, and we're going to pray until everyone's served. And we had little plates for their crackers, and, you know, we had a little formal thing going on here. And, and I said, and then make sure the other person has more than you. Be more concerned for the interests of others. You know, it's a very complicated but very true spiritual truth and biblical truth, you know. And so I said, and make sure the other person has more than you. And we had one of those little critters look at me and say, well, why would I do that? <laughs> I mean, we think it, they say it. I mean, you talk, you talk with older people, we, we've got all these filters and these sophisticated ways of not showing what's really going on in our hearts, you know. And, but these little kids, they just, they just tell you what's on their hearts. Why would I do that? That doesn't make any sense to me. 
Well, it makes sense if you understand what the Savior's done for us. Of course, you're going to want the other person to have more than you. You know, I, and I can't tell you how many times we've told them, we've, we've talked about this, put the other person first, the other person first, and then as soon as it's time to go to the playground, everybody wants to be first in line. <laughs> I just love it. You know, with little kids, you know, the, the worst thing that can happen, what, what is the worst thing that can happen? I want to be first in line. Somebody pushes somebody else. He hit me. So, you know, what's the worst that we can do? We just put him in timeout. We put him on a chair for a little while, and they sit there, and you say, I'll let you up if you, you know, if you promise to be good, and, you know, we do the little thing, and they go have fun. And there, was, there was one morning we had another little critter, a little terrorist. I have a friend who calls little kids terrorists. Anyway, um, he just had a it, it, VBS that week here at Christ Community, and then children's program. The kids are worn out and tired. And so Sunday morning, this one little boy, he could not be good. It was impossible. He had had like, I don't know, 14 timeouts. Not really. But he'd been in timeout forever. So I went over him and I was talking to him about it. And he, was, he had actually done this. And you never do this. He had looked at Mr. Burris and he'd said no. I'd ask him to do something. He's, he looked at me and he just said no. I said, oh, dude, you have no idea what you just did. <laughs> so I said, you never say no to Mr. Burris. You just don't do that. So he had time out. I went over talking to him. I said, you know, uh, I've, I've not mentioned the name so that the guilty will not be implicated. And I said, do you want me to go get your dad? Like that in children's ministry, that is like nothing worse. Do you want me to get your dad? And he said, yeah, I do. He just wanted to be with his dad. He just wanted to be with his dad. So I'm sitting there, you know, what do you do with a kid like that? You just hug him and you just say, yeah, he'll be here in a minute. You can get up from your chair, Mr. Bruce. He was, he was just really mean today. Sorry. <laughs> I just want to be with my dad. And I started to think about that. Wouldn't it be good for us if we took timeouts? Just went, and, I mean, you could send your, send your husband. Sometimes he needs a timeout, doesn't he? Or send your wife, I mean, your kids, what, you know, whatever. They need timeout. And just be with dad. You just want to be with dad. Because, you know what, things aren't going very well. And it's, it's tough right now. And I just want to be with dad. So you just, you just, you, you just, you just take the book and you open it up. And you say, Lord, speak to me. And he comes. By the power of his Holy Spirit, he comes. And you go down through the aisles, and he speaks. Uh, yeah, you need this, and you need this. And so you underline it, and you circle things, and you draw little arrows. And look at my Bible. Man, I've been, I've been down every aisle a lot, and every aisle is just like, whoa. I just want to get to the place where you just want to be with Dad. And... And once you do that, you're going to love those kids. And you'll be able to pass the baton. You'll be able to pass it on. So the third thing this morning, sign up for children's ministry. <laughs> it's the best thing in the world. I work with adults for, as a pastor for 36 years. Um, I think I may have missed my calling. 
I tell you, those kids, they're the best. They'll, they'll, they'll wipe away your crankiness. We get old and cranky, don't we? Any, anybody get old and cranky? Nobody wants to raise their hand. I know, I get it. They'll take away your crankiness. They're so real. And then, and then you get to go down the aisles with them, and you go, look at that, look at that. And as you're saying to little whoever, look at that, look at that. Isn't that cool? You're thinking to yourself, whoa, I think I need that more. It's just, you know... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close with um, an excerpt from a sermon that was preached in 2000 um, at a youth conference called Passion 2000. And the, this, the section I'm going to read comes from a sermon preached by John Piper. And here's what he says to all these young people. One of the really sad things about this moment right now is that there are hundreds of you in this crowd who do not want your life to make a difference. All you want out of life is to be liked. Maybe finish school, get a good job, find a husband or wife, a nice house, a nice car, long weekends, good vacations, grow old, healthy, have a fun retirement, die easy, and you don't go to hell. That's what you want. And that's all you want. And you don't give a rip whether your life counts on earth for eternity. And that is a tragedy in the making. Three weeks ago at our church, we got news that Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon. Ruby Eliason, over 80, single her whole life, was a nurse. She poured her life out for one thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the sick and the poor in the hardest and most unreached places. Her friend, Laura Edwards, a medical doctor in the Twin Cities of St. Paul, Minneapolis, ending retirement, partnered up with Ruby, also pushing 80, and going from village to village in Cameroon, and the brakes gave out, and over the cliff they go, and they both dead instantly. And I asked people, is this a tragedy? Is that a tragedy? Two women in their 80s almost, a whole life devoted to one idea, Jesus Christ magnified among the sick and the poor in the hardest places, and 20 years after most of their American counterparts have begun to throw their lives away on trivialities in Florida and New Mexico, fly into eternity with death in a moment. Is this a tragedy? It's not a tragedy. And then he goes on to say, I'll tell you what a tragedy is. The tragedy is this article from Reader's Digest. Some of you younger people don't know what this is, but that's okay. You don't know the Reader's Digest. Piper says, I know that, but there's a generation who does. Here's the tragedy. The title of the article says, Start Now, Retire Early, February 1998. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. They live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, collect shells. That's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. Oh, how can we waste our lives on trivialities? This, this right here, this, all for the glory of God, the King, the King of the universe who reigns forever and ever, who gave His Son for us and has entrusted us to live for the glory of God and the good of His people and spread this word everywhere we go. How can we do that? How can we do that? Till the day we die. Um, I, my wife never likes this when I say it. So she's right now she's going, oh no, he's going to say it. 
I do not want to die in America at an old folks home. I want to die in a village preaching the gospel to people who've never heard, which by the way, over two billion people have never heard the name of Jesus. I want to die in a village telling people about Jesus and they speared me through. That's the way I want to go. There's no other way to go. How can you not give the rest of your life in the service of the King? And so a great starting point, men, Open your Bible. Watch the river flow beneath you. Pick from the aisles the things that you need and then pass it on to the next generation. Sign up for children's ministry. It is the best. I, I just, if I could just infuse you, but the only way to get infused with this passion is it's right here. Ask for revival in your heart. Pray to God to change your heart. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.